Economist and policy entrepreneur Paul Romer is a co-recipient of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences and a university professor at NYU. He has spent his career at the intersection of economics, innovation, technology, and urbanization, working to speed up human progress. He discusses, along with Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, how rapidly increasing the use of COVID-19 tests for both current infections and antibodies could start us on the slow path back to normalcy. Let's listen in. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Paul uh, Romer to everyone today. Uh, Paul is an economist and a policy entrepreneur and a co-recipient of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. And he's a university professor in economics at NYU. Um, he spent uh, uh, a fascinating career at the intersection of economics and technology, uh, innovation and urbanization, and thinking about human progress. And boy, the challenges we face today are spot on those topics. Uh, he recently co-authored an op-ed in the journal called Testing is Our Way Out, which if people haven't read, I'd encourage you to go back and look. And, uh, and with that introduction, Paul, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the current environment and testing as a, a path forward. Thank hey, Rob I, Rob, I hate to interrupt. We did get Senator Bill Cassidy on the line here when we thought Paul wasn't. So can we just hear from him briefly with his, his concepts so it can help us shape the conversation? I apologize because we didn't know uh, Paul. Absolutely. And sorry, Paul. And Senator, great to have you. Uh, great to have you again. And, and great to have you share some more thoughts on testing in the registry. Yeah, but by all means. Hey, thank um, I, I, let me turn it over and I can jump in later on Wait. testing. Oh. So why don't we, Rob, shoot to uh, Senator Cassidy yes, first. Yes, so we'll go to Senator Cassidy. Okay. Hey, thank you all. Thank you all for being so engaged. We need your engagement uh, just to make whatever we, whatever we do to open the economy happen. This is the concept that I'm trying to balance. Uh, that first, young people are paying a disproportionate price in terms of missing school, missing college, missing work, even though they are rarely symptomatic if they're otherwise healthy. And two, our economy cannot continue in this state. And three, we actually have gathering scientific evidence that when people are exposed to the virus, they become immune to the virus. Not absolutely proven yet, but it's certainly the rationale between people developing neutralizing antibodies and other such um, uh, interventions. So how do we put this all together? We build upon the concept of immunization registries, which are already in use, in the sense that we establish an immunity registry so that when someone has been infected and either because they've had a positive uh, nasal swab, but it's been a sufficient amount of time to know that they've cleared the virus, or they have an antibody test, which are being rolled out and the administration have, uh, hopes to saturate the country with within a month. They've had an antibody test, which establishes that they have been previously infected. They could be recorded as being immune. Now, there are some caveats here. And again, the caveat is that we have to establish the duration of immunity, et cetera. But the point is, is if we wait until all the uncertainties are resolved, we're going to be in a great depression. So, so if we assume that the scientific uh, direction ends up being correct, that, that indeed, if you've been previously exposed, you're now immune, that immunity would be recorded in a registry, which would then allow someone to return to work 
showing proof of immunity, and therefore they could work as a nurse's aide without having to wear personal protective equipment when they work with someone who is otherwise vulnerable. That's as one example. As regards to young people, young people could be allowed to return to school, to college, to commerce, knowing that many of them are not immune, but that just inevitably they will become exposed, will become immune. If we do periodic testing, we can document when somebody does become immune. Uh, that one allows us to build up herd immunity. It also allows their grandfather and grandmother to know that they can hug their grandchild and it won't be a problem. Um, uh, and so we allow that to take place. Um, and and, and um, we also allow the employer to relax restrictions, a six-foot rule, if you will, between employees. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, when we finally get a vaccine, we will know who is immune, who is not immune, so we can target immunization efforts upon those who are not immune. Now, now we could do this through existing immunization registries that are state-based. But I'm guessing it would take one to two years before it would be fully implemented and all the uh, relationships between the states is established so as to establish uh, uh, herd immunity in the tri-state area in New York City, for example. Our proposal is that we ask the Centers for Disease Control to do this, uh, to stand up the registry. They are already receiving all these records of tests that are being done across the country. This would allow them to put it in a way which could then be more detailedly analyzed, both for individual and herd immunity. There's concerns I'm hearing from various senators. We think we're addressing them. There's EEOC concerns, but we think we have that resolved. There is the question of whether or not the Centers for Disease Control has the authority to keep personal health identif identifiers. We think they do. We think we have that resolved. They also have the money because we just gave it to them. That said, there's a little bit of a political issue. We've got to get enough members of Congress to agree to this so that we can kind of get an oomph to the CDC because I don't think the CDC is going to do it unless they have very clear direction to do so. So, Senator, um, this is Paul Romer. Can I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the path you're outlining, and I've been arguing very strongly for testing. But let me suggest something we could do alongside of that. And, and to explain it, let me tell you the story of my daughter works in an ICU as a physician caring for neonates. She caught COVID. She couldn't get uh, tested. You know, she's now probably in this category of people who have the antibodies and are immune. But here's the problem. Most of her colleagues at this hospital are not yet immune. And so you can't staff that hospital based on people who are immune. And moreover, um, there was a very dangerous period where she was coming into work because she was asymptomatic and could well have infected other members of the staff. So I think to supplement this strategy you've outlined, which is based heavily on antibodies and immunity, we could also have the, the, the virus screening tests, which catch things early on, you could test every single worker in that hospital when they come on shift and tell them, if you're negative, fine, go ahead. But if you're positive, man, we gotta isolate you because there's too much risk that you're gonna infect your, your colleagues. And so we could be well, using PCR-based tests to screen every healthcare worker. We should be screening uh, police officers we can save their lives and we can stop them as vectors that are spreading it to other people in the population. 
Paul, I'm in total agreement with you, total agreement. I think there should actually be, for high-risk people, such as healthcare workers, that kind of duality of testing. Um, and so that you would know either that they've tested positive for RNA or they have the antibody, but until they're immune, you continue to test for both. Total agreement. And you do have, you're right, you have to keep testing regularly. So if somebody's negative for the, you know, for the virus today, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to be negative tomorrow. So you could test, most people you could test every week or every uh, couple of weeks, but the high risk uh, people, I think we should be testing, you know, literally every day. There's, there's like 11 people, 13 people have died at the NYPD already from, from COVID. So we, have, we owe this to those frontline workers. It just means we got to scale up the testing and we got to scale up the, the, the virus testing, not just the antibody testing, because antibody testing comes too late to protect uh, these workers. Can I ask a question, uh, Senator, uh, in particular addressed to you, because you mentioned the low risk group is younger people. What about the demographics of the high risk group? We've heard about obesity, pre-existing pulmonary conditions, uh, blacks or African-Americans. Uh, would you do the opposite with, you know, that, that sounds like a dangerous road to go down um, to, to make to require them to have even more rigorous screening or testing. So, so the nice thing about this is that, well, two things, there's still some uncertainty, totally grant that. But, but let's imagine it's a grandparent who has diabetes. The fact that you know whether or not your child is immune or not, or your grandchild, gives you a lot of freedom. What you don't want is for that grandchild to get infected, you not know about it, and then to bring it home to you, the diabetic, infecting you, making you likely to have COVID-19 symptoms. Um, so, so, and I do think we need to find out if the antibodies that do accumulate in the inevitably infected diabetic give the same sort of protection as they do in the non-diabetic. So, so believe me, there's a gray area here that we have to sort out. But I do think that for those people at higher risk, this would allow us to more effectively target those measures that we need to protect them, to keep them from getting infected. And, and I, I, think, I think where we can agree is, is that um, scaling up the antibody tests is a great urgent national priority. But my point is we got to scale up the PCR virus test too, because you know the antibody tests don't even register something for somebody until 12, 14 days after the onset. And that's just too late to catch these asymmetric, these asymptomatic spreaders. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. Good. How, how do you open up an ordinary business or do you open ordinary business without testing those workers? Forget not put aside the hospitals and the first responders. Can you open up a factory? Can you open up a, a, a law office and have people come in without having the availability of the same kind of testing. Uh, so I would, nice I would test people, test your workers every week. If it's a really uh, high priority activity, you know, you could even test them every day. These tests are not that expensive, but we just scale them up. No, do we have a sense of how long it might take to scale them up to being able to do everyone in my workplace every week? You know, it's interesting. The administration what the, would like, well, go ahead, sir. Go ahead, I'm sorry. The administration wants to have these widely deployed ASAP. 
Now, they still have to do the kind of validation of the antibody tests we're doing, and there's a lot of stuff out there which doesn't work very well. But um, uh, they do have the test available. They just have to scale them, and as they scale them, know that they are still sensitive and specific. Uh, but uh, could I imagine in four weeks it being widely available? Absolutely. And just on the, you know, on the PCR testing, the, the antibody testing has this advantage. You can like send a kid home and you could do it at home. You could you know, do it anywhere. PCR testing right now is mainly lab centric, although there are devices like this new Abbott one, which is point of care that can be used in many places. Um, the potential for scaling up the PCR testing is enormous. The main thing we have to do though, is not worry about the, the FDA kind of procedures for, for testing. Okay tests are gonna be fine here. They don't have to be perfect. One of the big problems with the PCR testing right now is it's only approved if you use this narin, nasal pharyngeal swab that, you know, is, that goes way back in your head and there's only one firm that makes them. Well, it turns out you can use it, just another swab in the nose. You can actually take saliva it's not a part of an FDA approved test, but there are lots of centers that can test for virus using those other kind of samples. And we gotta just get the, the regulations out of the way and scale up what university labs know how to do. It seems to me that getting a legislative action and the funding would be one important step, but then even with a pile of a hundred million dollars. A uh, billion, who, sorry, hundred billion. Sorry, hundred, I'm sorry, a hundred billion dollars. Who leads the effort? Is it led by the private sector? Is it coordinated by the government? It feels like, yeah. like we have this second challenge. As hard as getting the legislation and the money will be, I think yeah. it can happen. I, I worry about the complexity of that next step and wonder, Paul, what you think, what you think might be yeah. best for uh, American know, society. I would, I would actually use this money to create some tests, I mean, some, some prizes. I would give a prize to the first lab that can get to a million tests a day and I give a bigger prize to the first lab that can get to 10 million tests a day. I've talked to the people in these labs, the, the, the processing of the wet stuff is not that hard. And in the, you know, the, the scaling up for the human genome effort, they figured out how to do to paralyze this. So they're really talking about like millions or 10 million a day. There are some big challenges in terms of, you know, it, it, it takes a, a tractor trailer load of, of vials to get a million uh, test samples. And you gotta unload those, you gotta get them into some automated process. Somebody's gotta figure out how to do all that stuff. But if you offered like a, I don't know, a $50 million prize uh, to get to the first lab that gets to, uh, you know, a million tests a day. And then a, you know, a $250 million prize first lab that can get to like uh, 10 million tests a day. I think we'd see but amazing you, Paul, response when, on this. No. When you describe a lab that can get to a million tests a day, are these tests that you, you would take and then they have to kind of go off to the lab and, and be processed and we're gonna find out the results? Do you think that's gonna take a day, two days? Well, there's I think there's two, there's two paths we could go down. One is these large central labs where you bring all the samples in using kind of logistics like you know, FedEx and, you know, and Amazon and so forth, bring the samples in, process them, get the answers, uh, post them online. The other path we should be pursuing is a version of this test that you could actually do at home. So this Abbott uh, test, the point of care test that, um, that you've heard about is not technically what they call PCR, but it's a related kind of nucleic acid test. It's easier because you don't have to manage temperature in a cycle that goes up and down. You just have to keep things at the same temperature. I'm talking to people who think you could scale that kind of Abbott device down to the point 
where you could mail those out to people and they could run them in their home, just like they run a, you know, a, a blood pressure uh, cuff that they, they buy, an automated blood pressure cuff. So I'd give another you know, $200 million prize to the first uh, people who can get that, that kind of test in a unit that you could actually deliver to, to somebody's house. And you know, there's some other pieces that are bottlenecks here. One of the big challenges is just you know what samples to take, what kind of swab, what kind of depth, where do you take them from? Uh, we should be given prizes to, for, for progress there. I would not try and um, centralize all these efforts under the federal government right now, because frankly, I think a lot of people who work in the government right now are afraid of making mistakes and afraid of getting, you know, caught out and ashamed. And so they're all just paralyzed. They're not moving fast enough uh, and they won't respond at the speed we need. Paul, uh, it's Fred Zeidman. Uh, and Senator, uh, actually, hello to you. And I wanted to ask this to both of you. Uh, how seriously do we need to consider if in fact we open the economy back up, open our country back up, uh, back up that there's a second wave or even a mutated wave of this virus uh, that hits us and the effect that will have on uh, the economy, which arguably might eclipse what we've been going through now. I think we may have lost the senator. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, unfortunately. Okay. okay. Yes. Well, then let, we me, did. let me let me try and respond. Great. Um, if, if we just start relaxing social distance, there's a very real risk that we're gonna see a rebound of this, of this disease. And we're already seeing that in some other countries that were, er, who were successful early on at, um, at suppressing the, the disease. It's also important to remember, we're in this for like 18 months, 24 months. And, and remember, think about HIV. It's not 100% certain we're gonna come up with a vaccine or a cure. So we gotta have a plan we can stick to indefinitely, but still let the economy recover. And at the scale of about 20 million tests a day, which means testing everybody in the United States about once every uh, two weeks, we've done the modeling and can show that that's enough to suppress any existing infections in the US and also to suppress any new ones that come back in from other places where it's still endemic. So, um, and 20 million tests a day might even be an ex excessive. It's a conservative um, estimate. It strikes some people as like being hugely ambitious because it's a lot more than we've delivered so far. But when you talk to the people who are involved in the technology on this, getting to 20 million tests a day is like well within the capacity of this economic system. The, the key thing, I keep telling everybody, this is like building the interstate highway system. It's not like a moonshot. Because when you started building the interstate highway system, you already knew how to build roads. You just have to go big. And we just have to go big with the existing systems we have for, for doing these, these tests. Can I ask, uh, Paul, are you familiar with the, uh, sorry, it's Eric Chern uh, in Chicago. Um, I, I've read recently about this uh, test that Color, is, color Genomics, I guess, is, is, is doing with, uh, Broad and with uh, with Cornell, and, and they're hoping to scale up to like a million tests. Uh, I, I guess a million tests a day. Have you heard of that? Are you familiar with it? Um, 
Well, I, I, I do not know the specifics on this, but I do have a colleague who reached out to Eric Lander at Broad and Eric is one of these people. So I didn't, have, I don't have this firsthand, but I had secondhand. Eric is one of these people who had experience with the human genome effort and with sequencing and who recognizes that the lab effort here is really quite manageable, quite doable. So um, I, I imagine, I don't know the details of what they're proposing, but I'm sure it's sensible. And I think it, it could easily be, we need to know whether it's a million a day or a million a week, but it could easily be that they're ready to roll out a million a day. Hi, this Hi, is, this is, uh, this is uh, Bob Seidman. Oh, is this, uh, I'd like to mention a couple of issues that I think the Problem Solvers Caucus, issues that came up so far that I think the Problem Solvers Caucus could really be useful for addressing. And one of them is somebody earlier, uh, Paul, before you got on, somebody mentioned discrimination and lawsuits. Businesses yeah. discriminate yeah. based on uh, people's immunity or, or uh, in, you know, whether they've been infected. So first of all, I think, without going into a lot of detail, uh, I would say that since the 60s civil rights movement, that the word discrimination has evolved, unfortunately. And, and I wanna make it clear, and I think that Solvers Caucus can say this, that discrimination is absolutely allowable. There's many situations, and the best yeah. example is you discriminate against an employee who's not qualified for the job. And this is an extremely important health condition that affects everyone in America. And I think we need that message getting out from uh, politicians in both parties. That this kind of discrimination is absolutely allowable. Maybe we need to use a different term and we probably need to have a federal law, I think, that protects businesses that quote unquote discriminate against people who are infected with the disease. And then the other thing I wanna say, it, it, I think there's a lot of issues with attitude um, about what's going on. Uh, I'm getting into Facebook arguments with heated arguments with people who think that uh, educated uh, people who think that the economy is just all about rich people making money and we really you know we can shut down the economy for a year or two if it means we save lives right. and i think that politicians on both sides need to start uniting and getting the message out that the economy is not just rich people making money it's really how does the country survive how do people survive how do they live if they don't have, uh, if they can't work and support their families? Yeah, well, so um, these are both good good questions. And I've been struggling with, with both of them. Uh, if you look, I wrote an earlier op-ed with Alan Garber, who's the provost at Harvard and a PhD and an MD. We did that in the New York Times. A couple of weeks later, I, I wrote the one in the Wall Street Journal. And you'll see some change in what I say based on what I've learned about how to communicate this. Um, I think it's a good strategy right now to stay away from the idea that, or even, even the possible misunderstanding that somehow we want to let a few more people die so we can get some more GDP. We just don't even need to start that discussion because we can say, if we want to protect lives, there's a hugely costly, horrifically costly way to save lives. And then there's a much less disruptive much lower cost way to save lives. Wouldn't you want to pick the low cost one instead of the high cost one? The high cost one is, is the social distance, which is just you know destroying the economy. The low cost one is this, this one where you test people repeatedly, and then you just ask the people who are um, uh, test positive to, to isolate. On your, on your first point, I, I think for the same reason that we don't want to get into a head-on argument saying we should be willing to let some people die to protect the economy. 
I also think we, we want to reframe the argument. So we're not talking about if you do test positive, then some bad things happen to you because that's going to really reduce the willingness, I think, uh, to, to comply with a recommendation that people get tested. So the way I would frame it is, is that one, get tested. You want to protect the people around you, the people you care about. But two, we as a society will help you. We're going to recommend that you isolate yourself. If necessary, we'll help arrange, you know, like meal deliveries. If you would like to isolate yourself from your family, who are at very high risk if you isolate at home, we'll create a place you could go to to be isolated where you're not going to infect your family. I think if we take those kind of like use those kind of carrots as a way to help people who um, um, who need to be isolated, I think we'll just get a solution much more quickly. Um, I, I do think that that the threat of lawsuits is one of the things that's that's paralyzing everybody. And so if we could just like put a moratorium on that, I think that would be a, a good idea. But I think, you know, any business, most of the businesses I talk to, they don't want to fire people when somebody tests positive. They just don't want them to come in and infect everybody else at work. They're quite happy to let people, you know, if you test positive, let them be off work, you know, either paid or unpaid and, uh, you know, and then welcome them back as long as they're not, when, as soon as they're not infectious again. But I think if we approach it in that kind of like supportive way, um, we'll, we'll just get a much quicker uh resolution to the problem, much, much more rapid uh, take up. And the, the colleagues of mine who are working on this device where you test you at home, their attitude, they're actually from Scandinavia and it's a different cultural context. Their attitude is if you just let people find out if they're positive, they'll do the right thing. You tell them you should stay home if you're positive, you should be careful about protecting your family members. You know, some people won't comply, but to protect the public, you know, the society, you don't have to have 100% compliance. In the United States, I don't know, we might, you know, even just that voluntary do the right thing uh, appeal might go a lot farther than we think. But, you know, we could also kind of layer in some some carrots uh, to this as well. Like, you know, if you want to go have a restaurant meal, just go get an easily available test, show that you're negative right now, and you can go get a, a restaurant reservation. Carrots like that can actually encourage people to get tested before we start talking about things like making it mandatory and uh, if I can just you know weigh in on one other dimension to this, there are some people who are very excited about the possibility of using apps on phones to track all your contacts and if somebody's positive to trace back on those contacts. I think it will just slow things down by months if we start talking about digital tracking and privacy and all of that. It's not necessary and it's just gonna cause a bunch of division and delay and wasted time. So I would just test Find the people who are positive. Tell them if you're positive. You should think about who you've been in contact with. If you care about them, you let them know. But don't go down this path of the digital apps. If, if people want to voluntarily participate in one of these things, fine. But we're just talking about making that mandatory um, is just, a, I think, a prescription for paralysis again. But, Paul, can I just ask well, you to differentiate? Um, like how the, the, the idea of this digital contact tracing, you would not be in support of. But do you think contact tracing itself, you know, asking that person, where do you work? Who do you sit near? Where have you been for the last three days? Reaching yeah. out to those people and so on. How important is that as part of the testing regime? Uh, you know, this is a method which can be effective in small populations and at the early stages of an, of a, of an infection, of a pandemic. But we're too far down that. Um, you know, if you think if we got 1% of the U.S. that's infected now, you know, it's like, you know, more than 3 million people. If they've all got 10 contacts, uh, 
you're talking about, you know, 30 million people. We don't have anything like the workforce that it would take to go out and, you know, knock on doors and, and do contact tracing at that at that level. And, but but we could quite feasibly test 30 million people or, you know, 20 million a day, 30 million a day. So I really think just ubiquitous testing is is the way to go. And, and you know, if people want to voluntarily adopt some digital contact tracing, that's fine. Voluntarily tell whoever, keeping the data when you're positive and so forth, that's fine. But I think trying to mandate it is really going to be a, a recipe for paralysis. I even think mandating testing, the PCR virus testing, is probably a recipe for paralysis. I don't think we're going to need it. I think um, if it's available, people will, will do it. One thing I might say, though, is that I think it would be a good idea to actually bundle the antibody tests with the PCR tests, because the antibody tests will provide some background screening and uh, evidence about what's the history of infection. And um, you know, you can have these test collection sites um, reporting the aggregate numbers without even necessarily reporting who the individuals are, but the data from both the PCR and, and the antibody tests would actually help the officials make plans for what to do. And Paul, I had a follow-up question on tracing. I know some countries, I think South Korea and others have had a lot of success there. Can you speak yeah. to best practices there? Because I, at least from what I've heard, um, many feel like that's the key, not just testing, but actually quickly telling people I'm exposed and having those people either voluntarily or by mandate getting tested so that you're getting more real-time data that's relevant. Well, I, here's the way I think about this. Um, if, if each person who's infected is gonna infect like 2.5 other people, then if you can isolate say 70% of those people who are infected, instead of for the given crop of infected, you get 2.5 times that. If you isolate 70%, then you get uh, 0.3 times, like one minus 0.7 times 2.5, and you're well below this factor of one. And when you're replicating at a rate, the factor that's less than one, it just, the disease goes away. So the only thing that matters here is what's the fastest, quickest, cost-effective way to figure out who's infected right now. These tests, I think, are a very cost-effective way to figure out who's infected. The tracing can be a way to do it as well, but you know, I think it's really unknown whether we can do it at the kind of scale that we're operating at the United States. So I don't mind if people want to try and scale up uh, tracing, but remember, they're both just ways to try and get some people who you identify as positive and get them into, into isolation. So, you know, you could use tracing to decide who to, who to test. There's some ways you could actually target the testing. I already alluded to test the high risk occupations, people who've got a lot of exposure. I think you could also deploy your tests more intensively in geographic regions once you see that the, the rates or uh, the prevalence is, is going up. So there's lots of ways to increase your yield of find the positives and isolate them. Tracking could be one of them, but it, it's just one that people are familiar with. It's unfortunately not likely to be the one that is gonna work for safe. us right now. You listen? I'm sorry, that might have just been some extra noise. I'm sorry, Paul. One other question that, that was posed to me by email. Um, 
so we talked about the idea of a, a, your idea, of, you know, scaling to a massive number of tests, our best path. Yeah, actually, actually, before we go on, let me just note one thing. There's some times where I can say, I'm telling you what the consensus is. My reading on, on tracking, I have to be honest, I'm a little bit in the tail on this. The conventional public health people still think we need to do that. So talk to some other people to get a different read. No, understood. But I, but I find your, yeah. I find you, your, it's refreshing to sort of be honest about how complicated such a thing would be to, you know, implement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the question comes, comes, you know, you, you talked briefly about the swabs being uh, in shortage and, you know, yeah. we should modify what we're doing there. We've also heard about these reagents and, you know, they're yeah. necessary yeah. for these tests and are they in shortage? Yeah. Is that supply chain through China? Any comments you might have on that topic? Yeah. So um, the, this, but the traditional FDA approved RT reverse transcriptase uh, PCR test there are various steps that are required for that. You have to use this particular swab. You also have to use what's called a, the RNA extraction kit from a particular manufacturer. If, if you've got people and organizations that are all based, we can't do it unless it's F FDA approved, you get a shortage in that particular kit for the RNA extraction and boom, you're out of luck. But you know, you look at the university labs and they're saying, you know, we tried a different you know, uh, extraction kit. It worked just as well. And there's another paper I could send you where they said, you know, we did it without the extraction step and that worked well. So I think a lot of these bottlenecks are because of the very specific rigidity of an FDA approved test. And I think on the testing uh, end of this, we just gotta say, we don't need all of that restriction and care and caution that the FDA brings. Now I'm gonna make a distinction here. I think on, on testing for safety of a vaccine, you need 100% of that bureaucratic, slow, careful FDA process. Because if we roll out a vaccine that has an unexpected complication rate uh, that's low, but you know, in 30, 330 million people, you know, 50 million people, you're gonna, you're gonna get a lot of complications. We get like paralysis, 10,000 people who are paralyzed, we're gonna lose the consensus that we're barely holding on to that the government can require parents to get their kids vaccinated for whooping cough and measles and mumps. So we gotta be very careful about introducing a vaccine that's unsafe or a new treatment that's unsafe. But testing, there's no problem if the test isn't perfect. So we gotta just break free of the, the restrictions of this you know, FDA approval process and just get uh, some freedom amongst these types like the university labs to just run fast and get something that works. So when do you think all this testing is gonna be available and how is that gonna to relate to when uh, people wanna start the economy up again? Yeah. The, the biggest hurdle here is gonna be logistics. Um, and I think we need to think about, this is why I was talking about prizes before, we need to think about how we could deploy the people in the university labs or the Broad Institute who know how to do millions of tests and simultaneously link them up with the people like FedEx, Walmart, Amazon, who, who understand logistics and you know um, warehouses and cross-docking. And um, uh, I, I think we need to find some way to create some urgency to get those people to experiment and, and work together. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just worried that something like the DPA is gonna um, freeze everybody again 
where they're afraid of making mistakes. But uh, I do think big prizes can be a great way. If you know the story of the Netflix prize, a prize can be a very good way to motivate a lot of people to start working towards a solution to a problem. It's been stated that there's no absolute sure immunity um, that anybody's completely positive that the antibody testing makes someone Teflon to the virus. Yeah. When will we know that? Um, um, to, to be honest, um, it's, it's, it's actually important actually to draw a distinction here. There are really two quite distinct paths we could go down. And it's unfortunate people are mixing these a lot. One path is where you actually try to go towards an extreme where most people have been infected with the, the virus and most people are immune. And then you know we're not gonna face any more problem with a pandemic. That, that will work. But the problem is, is you're gonna infect most people. You figure out whatever the fatality rate is, you multiply that fatality rate times most people and you're gonna lose a lot of lives. And unfortunately, you're gonna lose lives of young people too. There's a Washington Post story today about, you know, like people under 50 who are dying from this. So that's a costly path to go down. The other harder path, but the one that will save more lives is where you say, we're going to find a way to make sure that even though most people haven't been infected, we keep the, the pandemic under control. And that will avoid the loss of life. But it means you've got a, you know, a bigger challenge to protect a largely susceptible uh, population with um, something like frequent testing and isolating the people who are uh, positive, you can protect a, a, you know, a susceptible population in, indefinitely. It's a little bit more of a challenge, but we can, um, we, we can do it. So um, I think we should commit explicitly to the you know, protect a, a susceptible population mode and then you know, just figure out how to do it at, at, at low cost. Um, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, I really hate having a defense department, you know, couldn't we just get rid of the defense department and then we could live our lives and we'd save a bunch of money. It's like, no, no, you actually need to pay for national defense. You can live with it, but you got to pay for that. Same way, you know, we need some defense against viruses and pandemics. And, and listen, this one's not the only one that's going to hit us. So even if you let it run through the United States and let most people get infected, a bunch of them die, but you know, a bunch survive and you're protected against that one. You're just wide open for the next one that comes down the pike. Whereas if you have this system for you know, tailing, and you can tailor these uh, nucleic acid tests for whatever the, the DNA or RNA of any one of these viruses is, you've got this whole infrastructure, that's your defense system for any attack by any of these virus foes. So I think we just got to recognize we're going to commit to a defense department, a health defense department, run it kind of like the regular defense department. And, you know, we got a big enough economy to, to live with that. Paul, can you explain why the it doesn't matter if there's a high false positive rate and the test doesn't have to be particularly accurate? Oh, yeah. And by the way, I mix these things up all the time. There are two words, sensitivity and selectivity. I just never use those words because I can never get them right. But um, the high false positive rate would actually be a bit of an economic problem because that's when you say somebody's positive when they're not positive. So if you're testing like you know million, 20 million people a day, if you had a 5% false positive rate, you'd be sending a lot of people to quarantine who don't need to go. Fortunately, these nucleic acid tests have a very low false positive rate. And if you test positive, you're, you're positive. You've got that virus in, inside you. 
The other side though is the false negative rate. These tests will often fail to pick up somebody who's actually got some virus in them. It's like you didn't take this, the sample correctly or you're just at the very early stages. And then the way, the reason why it doesn't matter to have a high false negative rate, 10%, 20%, 30%, is that you just keep retesting frequently. And so even if you miss somebody in the first test, you, you catch people around them and you'll catch their neighbors if they catch it from them. And so there's lots of backup in this frequent retesting um, system. And if people go to my website, you'll see some simulations I did with, um, with literally even like a 60% or an 80% false negative rate. So you're only catching a tiny fraction of the positives that you're testing. But if you just do it frequently, you catch some positives. It's like catching fish. All you gotta do is catch positives. Catch positives, you put them in isolation, just keep catching until you get enough in isolation and then, and then it works. It's a very different way of thinking about a test than the way a, your doctor would think about it if the doctor's trying to make a decision about how to treat your, your illness. But it is the way we need to think about how to protect the, the, the population. Well, terrific. We're getting to the end of our hour. Um, and this has been a, a fantastic conversation, Paul, and, uh, and great to have you thinking about you know, what, what appears to be our only path forward. Um, maybe as a posing, maybe as a final question, I'll ask you, when do you think in America we'll be ready to test 20 million people in one day? That's good. That's a fair question. Um, I, you know, this good Jack Dorsey said he was going to give away a billion dollars on this issue. I think if you put out a prize and say, we'll pay a billion dollars to the first organization that runs 20 million tests in a day, I think you'd actually get it. An yeah, I think you'd get that done within a month. I really think it, we could do that. And remember, the hard part will be the logistics um, and things like how you collect the samples. But um, I, I think we could we could do it in, in a month. And um, now, practically, will we do it that quickly? Uh, I don't think we will. But um, but I think we could do it, you know, within two months. And if we had like a hundred billion fund, if the Congress this week uh, kind of puts in place a hundred billion fund, and then it finds a way to parcel out to like give e uh, each state a portion of that to spend on experiments with testing um, so the money gets spent quickly. I, I think we could we could do this within within two months. And honestly, I really I worry for the fear, I worry for the future of this country if we let this extend beyond you know two months. That's terrific. And I know everyone on this call is hoping uh, we can be a small part of helping our government you know operate in a better way to take on these big things in a uh, sort of what's right for the country bipartisan way and so uh, well, well lobby for lobby for money for testing for the bill next week although COVID-19 testing across the U.S. is increasing it still isn't meeting demand that's why Paul Romer believes we need better incentives to get labs to produce them because the only way people will feel comfortable going back to work or to a restaurant is if they believe we have a handle on who has this virus and how to contain outbreaks go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.